if you remember last month, uh, Lance Armstrong, fellow Texan, won the Tour de France for the second year. And uh, this is, of course, the most prestigious race in cycling. And uh, nobody thought that he was going to be able to do this for the second year in a row. Of course, last year when he won it, uh, it was a big to-do because he came back from fighting cancer for having won this race. And it was exciting because uh, even after the cancer had uh, spread up into his lungs, even into his brain, he was able to come back and to win. A lot of his critics, though, last year said that, you know, uh, it was easy win last year. It was kind of a hollow win last year because the best cyclists were out because of a drug, a drug deal. They were disqualified, and so they weren't able to ride. But now in 2000, the, 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 the good cyclists are going to be there. You've got the hard... Uh, You've got the hard course, you've got the good cyclists, now we're going to see what this guy's made of. Well, he won again, and uh, he won by a six-minute margin, which is outstanding. There were a few people, I think, that believed that he could win this second time around. One commentator in particular noticed that he had lost 40 pounds during his bout with cancer and believes that this 40-pound loss played a significant role in his being able to come back and win. Because even though after his fight with cancer he gained some more muscle back, he never was as heavy as he was before, and that played a significant part in him being now the two-time uh, world champion of the cycling in, in Tour de France. We have all shared pain in our lives. Uh, some have had great pain. And in the midst of that pain, very often, in fact, there's probably not a one of us that hasn't, looked up to heaven, and in some sense cast a glance of blame up there and asked God, why in the world does it have to be this bad? I mean, yeah, I understand trials are part of life, but boy, this is absolutely killing me. Why does it have to be this bad? R.C. Sproul was asked one time the typical question that's asked, why do bad things happen to good people? And his response was classic. He says, I've never met any good people, so I don't know. <laughs> so perhaps we ought to ask the question another way. And that question would be, why do bad things happen to those who are trying their hardest to do what's right? I think sometimes in our lives, it's only, only through years of hindsight that we're able to look back and we're able to see, a lot like Lance Armstrong certainly saw, that the poundage we shed through today's trials ends up being the very thing that God uses in the future to give us victory. Let's look together, if you would, in 1 Peter chapter 4. Because Peter is going to be talking to us today about losing that poundage, as it were, or losing the baggage that weighs us down, that hinders us from going forward into victory. If you've been with us throughout our series, you remember that Peter has labored through four chapters so far and trying to get our focus from off of our trials where they are today and putting them in the perspective 
of a much bigger picture. And that perspective is that of eternity. And he started off from from the word go, and he says, we have a salvation that is secure, that is uh, reserved for you in heaven. Again, the heavenly perspective. Later on in the chapter, he says you need to fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, keep your hope so fixed on the time that Jesus comes that that is what you're thinking about at the same time that you're living in pain. And with that eternal perspective, he says, you need to love a couple of things that are eternal. That's the Word of God. That's the people of God. You need to have a behavior that reflects that eternal status of being a citizen of not just earth, but also of heaven. And that affects your behavior toward the government. That affects your behavior in your workplace. That affects your behavior in the home. And regardless of any of these unjust circumstances where you've got authority over you, where you don't really want to do what they have to say. How are we to respond to that? Well, Peter goes on to say we're still to submit to that authority, even if they don't obey the word of God. And we're to have an ever-ready message on our lips as to why in the world we're acting the way we act and everybody else is acting differently. And that ever-ready message is the very simple truth that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for our sins. And I have a hope that though I'm struggling now, my hope is that one day I'm going to be with Him in heaven because all of my sins are forgiven. That is the message, the ever-ready message that needs to be on our lips. And if you remember when we started the chapter we're now in, 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter says, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, since Christ has gone through all this in an unjust way, he says we're to adopt that same attitude. We're to have that exact same purpose in suffering. We're to have that exact same purpose in suffering. And so we're going to start today in verse 12. In the context of deep struggle, in the context of pain, in the context of suffering, which is something that we can all relate to, Peter's going to give us a word today of how we can live out our faith in times like these. Peter begins, verse 12, and says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though something strange were happening to you. You know, I know in my own life, and I bet it's true in yours as well, that the greatest pain that has come to me has come from false expectations. We expect certain things of situations. We expect this of our career. We expect this, this is how marriage is going to be. We expect this is how our kids are supposed to live and how our kids are supposed to grow up. We expect this is what's true of us in our relationship with one another as a church. And we also have expectations of our relationship with God. We believe for some reason that the, the qualities of life, of peace and joy, don't mix with the reality of life that also comes in with pain. That there's something wrong there. How can we have peace and joy and pain at the same time? Somehow we think that suffering is always a negative thing. Somehow we believe, or at least we want to believe, that our good God who is in heaven would not allow his children on earth to hurt to the level that we hurt. 
I really believe that each of these myths is of the devil. And that it's of his uh, inspiration, you might say, to keep us from trusting and depending on the Lord. Roger Staubach was asked one time, how do you keep on playing professional football when you get injured? And he made a great statement. It's very short, but very, very penetrating. He says, if you're not playing hurt, you're not playing football. Because that's part of the game. You know, the same is true in life, particularly in the Christian life. For some reason, we get this picture that once we place our faith in Jesus, or at least the way it ought to be, if we live right, it ought to be this way. Why is all this pain all of a sudden in my life then? If I'm living for Jesus Christ. We don't see how the two can mesh together. It's like oil and water in our minds. And we don't see how in the world we can possibly be living. And so what, the conclusion we come to then, because we believe these lies is that God is displeased with us. Peter begins by making sure our perspective is correct. He says, don't be shocked when there's trials in your life, because that's part of reality. Don't consider it strange. He says, as if something strange is happening to you. It's not strange, it's normal. In fact, he says there is a purpose that God allows this kind of thing into your life. And that purpose is for your testing. It's neat that the word Peter uses here for ordeals, or he calls them fiery, a fiery ordeal among you, is the exact same word he used back in chapter 1. If you've got a Bible, why don't you flip back to chapter 1 and look at verse 6. Verse 6 and 7. Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice. That means in your sure salvation. In this you greatly rejoice. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. There's the word. And here's the purpose. That the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, take Peter's book as a whole. We don't just take chunks of it every Sunday. Understand it as a whole. Peter is saying that the purpose of trials is that we might be refined, like gold is refined with fire. That we might be refined, that we will achieve great things for the Lord Jesus. Tom Landry once said, My task is to renew the minds of our players so that I can get them to do what they don't want to do in order for them to achieve what they want to achieve. It's a great perspective for a coach, and you know, incidentally, I think it's the perspective that the Lord has as well. It is a, as Landry says, my task is to the renew the minds of the players, to get them to do what they don't want to do, so that they will achieve what they want to achieve. You see, the purpose in us in our lives of pain, is not just pain for pain's sake. It's not like God says, well, okay, devil, we've got to give you some due. We'll let you have a little bit. You can hurt him just much. No, there's a purpose in the pain. 
And from beginning to end of the scripture, you see invariably the, the truth, the principle lifted over and over again that as, as we endure the process of suffering in our lives, the process of suffering that we go through, that we go through inevitably leads to the product of character. The process of suffering leads to the product of character. Invariably, this is the way it is. So let's glean something here from Peter, and that is a correct perspective. Let's glean correct expectations. And from no longer, let's go from here expecting that being a Christian, being a faithful Christian, is going to make God your sovereign bodyguard. That he will never allow any pain at all in your life. Peter says, know right up front that fiery trials shouldn't surprise us because they arise for the purpose of testing. I've asked a brother, Greg Midkiff, who just walked out. Would you go find Greg? <laughs> Actually, I was supposed to have him do it before the message, but I wanted to, I, I changed without telling him. <laughs> And now I want to do it in the message. And I watched him the whole time. He was sitting right there looking at me like, are you going to have me come up? And now it's time for him to come up and he's gone. This is the fiery trial having to endure. Okay, well, if he shows back up, great. If not, uh, we'll move on. But the fiery trial that Peter is talking about here is not, uh, is not losing a parking place at Dillard's. Okay, you're almost there. Ah, somebody got in front of you. Ah, these trials are terrible. That's not the kind of trials that we're told here Peter's talking about. Peter's talking here about real issues. Particularly, this would become a literal issue in the years shortly after this, when Peter's readers would endure what Nero did to them. You know, Rome was burned to the ground not long after 1 Peter was written. Christians were blamed for it. And Nero began a kind of retaliation where he would take a Christian, he would cover that Christian in pitch, and he would light like a candle. He would light the Christian like a candle to provide light for his garden parties. And you don't think Peter's readers, after having experienced that and coming back to 1 Peter, will not understand fiery trials, not only in the metaphorical sense of being very terrible, but also in the very literal sense of my daughter just got burned. Tell me how I, as a, as a, as a new Christian, am supposed to respond to this kind of activity that God allows in my life. See, that's the level of pain that Peter's talking about here. That's the level of hurt that this book is written to address. Not the mild inconveniences of a flat tire, but the kind of pain in your life where a child in your womb is never born, where you lose a child. Or you've got some kind of suffering of an innocent person and you can see absolutely no justice at all and why God would allow this kind of pain in your life. I find it very helpful to try to view God like a parent. I remember when my Sarah was born, watching, of course, this is precious little baby be brought in. And then the doctor comes in with, you know, all these syringes and comes up and, and puts little Sarah there on the table and says, hold her for me. 
and I have to hold my struggling daughter still while this mean old doctor sticks these needles into her. Now, how do you feel as a parent when that kind of thing happens? Of course, you know there's a benefit to it. But there is also a great twist of emotion that goes on. Because you have to hold your child against their will so that this penicillin can go in and can take care of whatever potential disease it's intended to solve. You don't think the same thing is true on a grand sovereign scale as our Heavenly Father looks down and holds us still where we can't squirm out of a trial because He knows the only way that we're going to have character produced is to go through getting stuck with this needle. You don't think it hurts Him to watch it happen? Sure it does. But I didn't stop and say, nope, nope, that's hurting her too bad. Let's don't give her those shots. She's got to have them. Or there may be worse results. The same is true of us and our Heavenly Father. So our response should not be shock. Ah, why is this happening to me? Peter says, don't be surprised. Don't let it be something strange to you. Instead, our response should be verse 14. Uh, verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. I want you to notice Peter says that you share the sufferings of Christ. We don't have this picture of a God who is up on his cushy throne looking down on us here on earth who are struggling and he never has any idea what we're going through. No, we share the sufferings of Christ. That is that God himself left his throne and came down and suffered more than any other human has suffered because when Jesus Christ suffered, he suffered unjustly, having never sinned. He became sin for us when he died on the cross. God, we share the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And so our response then is to be not one of shock, but rather of rejoicing. There's an actor named Bruce Marciano. He portrayed uh, Jesus in the video series called Matthew. Made an interesting statement. He said, I believe every Christian should hang on a cross for at least 30 seconds. Their lives will never be the same. And from a guy who portrayed Jesus and invariably would have to hang on a cross, at least acting, but you could, could you imagine really doing it for real? You'd never, you'd never look differently, would you? Never, never look the same at the cross again. And yet we don't have to hang on the cross to share the sufferings of Christ. Peter says, to the degree that you share Christ's sufferings, keep on rejoicing. And so here's a great principle that we can glean from this verse. That is that we should rejoice when sharing Christ's sufferings because we will greatly rejoice when seeing Christ's glory. See, how can you find eternal, how can you find a lasting joy amidst all the pain that we go through? Well, you're not going to find it here on the planet. 
because the planet's full of pain. Yeah, we've got temporary happiness. This goes well, that's great, but then we've got this that goes bad. This goes well, that's great, but then we've got this that goes bad. My friends, if that's where you get your joy from, I'm not talking about happiness, I'm talking about lasting peace in your heart. If it comes from your circumstances, you're never going to have it. It's got to come from something other than what's temporary. It's got to come from that which is eternal, which is a whole focus of what Peter's teaching us as we work our way through 1 Peter. Can pain and joy be synonymous in the life of a Christian? Yes. And we experience it any time we go to a funeral, don't we? Because we experience that. We've got great pain at the loss of one whom we love, and yet we've got great joy at the fact that we know that they're with the Lord. And at the same time, we have these, these mixed emotions of, of pain and of joy, and they are both intense. Great pain. And yet at the same time, great joy. Peter says it's that kind of an attitude that we're to have. Yes, we hurt because of the trial, but we rejoice not in the trial, but because we know what that trial produces. And we know the end result is not pain, but we will greatly rejoice when seeing Christ's glory. You see the contrast? You've got rejoicing now, but greatly rejoicing then. Back in uh, 1982... More than 60,000 University of Wisconsin fans crammed into Badger Stadium to watch their blessed team get creamed by Michigan State. And yet, at the same time that they were watching their team get creamed, they were cheering. And why would they do that? Because many of the fans were listening on transistor radio. About 70 miles away, the Milwaukee Brewers we're beating the St. Louis Cardinals in Game 3 of the World Series. So while in front of them it was terrible, they were getting creamed, they were listening to something that was happening far away that's a far greater victory, and they were cheering. People probably looked at them like they were crazy if they didn't know what was going on. Incidentally, this is your transistor radio, isn't it? And as you live throughout this life and we have pain and you're looking and look, look, we're getting creamed. We can listen and we can know that we have a bigger victory that has occurred. We can't see it, but we hear about it and we know that it's true. And because that is true, we can cheer and we can rejoice in spite of the fact of all this suffering that's going on around us. A very biblical perspective to have, even in Wisconsin. Peter gives us an additional reason now that we can rejoice in the midst of our pain. Not rejoicing because of the pain, but in the midst of it. He says in verse 14, he says, If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. This verse is uh, pretty current, I would say, to our culture. We live in an age that demands political correctness towards almost everybody, but ignores it towards Christianity. You notice what kind of uh, flack Governor Bush got, I think it was June, June 10th, when he says, today's Jesus Day. Boy, that, that got all kinds of flack. You get the same kind of flack at a high school commencement where, yes, the student can pray, 
but you can't say the J word at a high school commence commencement. You get the same kind of thing in your neighborhood, where nobody really wants to be around you because they may know that you're a Christian, they may know that you go to church, and you kind of make them uncomfortable as you live your morality. And so you don't really get invited to do anything. Because they're going to be drinking beer, they're going to be cussing, they're going to be doing all kinds of stuff. They feel that you're not really going to fit in. How do you respond to that kind of an attitude? Peter tells us, remember, that along with the reviling, along with the being made fun of, along with all the negative persecution that we get here in our country, along with that comes the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Because for every single person who has the name of Christ for which they're reviled, also comes the blessing of the presence of the Spirit of glory, the Spirit of God within you. And the Spirit of glory, of course, the book of Ephesians tells us, is just a small little down payment, small little deposit, a small little foretaste of the glory that's to come. Henry Nouwen once said that perhaps... The main task of the minister is to prevent people from suffering for the wrong reasons. See, suffering is inevitable, but our task is to help you to keep from suffering for the wrong reasons. And Peter, as a great preacher, as a great teacher, as a great apostle, this is exactly what he does. In verse 15 he says, By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. A troublesome meddler is somebody who pokes their nose in somebody else's business where it doesn't belong. Then he says, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God. I want you to notice the very practical responses that Peter's given us here. It's something that we can apply today. The, the practical responses to dealing with suffering and trials in our lives. That is, he says that we should rejoice. Not in the trials, but because we will greatly rejoice at Christ's glory. He says we should consider ourselves blessed. Not because of the trials, because of, but the spirit of glory within us. It's a foretaste of the glory that's to come. He says that we're to, we're to glorify God, not because of the trials, but because of the name we have as Christians, and we should not feel ashamed. And while suffering is inevitably part of God's plan for every single Christian, Peter says it is not part of God's plan for us to suffer having done wrong. And this is his point here in these couple of verses. If you're going to suffer... Suffer for doing right. That gives God glory. If you suffer for doing wrong, that's just justice. There's no glory in that. But if you're going to suffer, suffer for doing what's right. Now, why would we only want to suffer for doing what's right and not for what's wrong? Peter tells us, verse 17, he says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will be of what will become of the godless man and the sinner? 
You want to be sure and keep these verses in their context. Because you rip them out of context, it makes it look like it's difficult to get to heaven unless you work real hard at it. That's not what he's saying. Remember, in the context, he is, he is explaining to us why, as those who have placed our faith in Jesus, should we not suffer for doing wrong, but rather for doing right. He says the reason is, verse 17, because judgment will begin with the household of God. This isn't a judgment, meaning you'll go to hell. That judgment was taken care of when Jesus died on the cross. The judgment he's talking about here is the judgment of discipline. It's the judgment that you got when you were growing up and your parents, you know, took out the belt. I can remember the judgment that was felt. You, you know that, that slap that you, that you hear? And you pull the belt out, slap, 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 slap. Woo, there comes judgment. That's exactly what it's being talked about here. And yet that kind of a judgment after the slap, 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 and then the slap, 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 wasn't a judgment, all right, now get out of the house, never come back. It wasn't being ostracized, but it was a judgment, it was discipline for the purpose of bringing me back in line, which is exactly what Peter's talking about here. He says that if you are, uh, a judgment begins with the household of God, I mean, if we've got a temporary judgment here on earth, imagine what's going to happen to those who have not placed their faith in Jesus for the godless and the sinner, those who have not obeyed the gospel of God. See, Peter's saying that nobody gets a license to do wrong, even if you're a believer. You look in the Old Testament, you see Moses. Moses, boy, what a great guy, what a powerful guy, what a humble guy. And yet he still got his hand slapped, wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. You got David, man after God's own heart. Yet because of the sin that he committed with Bathsheba, his life and his family were never the same. After that, you got, of course, Solomon, a godly man, up through the first uh, few chapters of 1 Kings. After that, <laughs> uh, from chapter 12 on, you've got a guy who was reeling and a nation that is reeling as a result of his compromise. Discipline. And the purpose of the discipline is to bring us back into line. Back in 1659, the old Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote some great words. He said, God who is infinite in wisdom and matchless in goodness hath ordered our troubles, yea, many troubles, to come trooping in upon us on every side. As our mercies, so our crosses seldom come single. They usually come treading one upon the heels of another. They are like April showers. No sooner is one over, but another comes. It is mercy that every affliction is not an execution, that every correction not a damnation. The more the afflictions, the more the heart is raised heavenward. You see, for the believer, the purpose of all discipline is not punishment, but rather correction. The judgment happened back on the cross. So why does God, I mean, the condemnation happened back on the cross. So what kind of a judgment do we have in this life? For those of us who place our faith in Christ, it is a judgment of discipline to bring us back in the line, the line back up again with the Heavenly Father, which is exactly what he teaches us in the very last verse. Verse 19, he says, Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God 
and trust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. I don't want you to miss the, that first word. It's, it's, it's crucial. Therefore. In light of what I've just told you, therefore, here is how I want you to act. In light of the fact that fiery trials shouldn't surprise you, they're going to come. In light of the fact that you greatly rejoice when seeing Christ's glory. In light of the fact that you're blessed with the presence of the Holy Spirit. In light of the fact that God disciplines us when we sin. In light of all these things, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God, meaning those who suffer for doing right, entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. I find it fascinating that the very word that Peter uses here, entrust, is the word that Jesus used when He died on the cross. Just before He died, He looked up and He said, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. Same word, entrust. I entrust My Spirit. Peter says that those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. You ever find it a contradiction that Jesus would look up and scream, My God, why hast Thou forsaken me? And yet right after that say, Father, into Thy hands I commit my spirit. You don't think that we live, don't live with that same kind of attention and contradiction in our lives? Where we wonder where in the world God is? At the same time we say, God, we've got nobody else but You. How do we entrust our souls to God? Very simply, Peter's told us that when suffering for doing what's right, we should trust God and continue to do what's right. How can we do that? Because God is faithful. He is a faithful creator. Therefore, we are to be faithful. Frederick Buechner has a, a wonderful statement. He says, think about this. He says, as the farthest reach of our love for each other is loving our enemies... As the farthest reach of God's love for us is loving us at our most unlovable and unlovely, so the farthest reach of our love for God is loving Him when in almost every way that matters we can neither see Him nor hear Him, when the worst of the wilderness for us is the fear that He has forsaken us, if indeed He exists at all. It's a wonderful analogy. It's a wonderful picture because I think it's true. I think it's biblical to say that the greatest love we can have for one another is to love our enemies. Jesus taught that. The greatest love that God has is when God loved us who were sinners. Read Romans 5. When we were enemies, Christ died for the godless. That's the greatest love. And one of the greatest ways we can show our love to God is when God seems absent, when God seems apathetic, when God seems not to care about all the fiery trials that are going on in your life, Peter says that is the exact time that you are called to entrust yourself to a faithful Creator. Having just cried out, My God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now you cry out, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. To the God who is faithful, in spite of the circumstance, you be faithful, is what he's saying. Let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right.
Trials are not a reason to sin against God, but a marvelous opportunity to trust Him. Pauline Hilton shared about the time when her parents were in the Salvation Army. They were out one Christmas evening. Of course, it was blizzardy and nobody else was out, and they were on the corner ringing their bell. She said her father gave a brief sermon and that they sang Christmas carols to nobody. But they did it because they wanted to be faithful. Several weeks later, father's out there ringing the bell again. This lady comes walking by and says, Hey, weren't you all out here that Christmas evening doing this during that terrible weather? He says, Yeah, yeah, we were. He says, Well, we heard you. We were inside. And my father, who has been in a coma for six months, we were dreading the holidays because he hadn't been with us. He hadn't said anything. You know, last year everything was great. This year, now he's in a coma. He said, when he heard your carols, he sat straight up, having not said anything for six months. He sat straight up and said, that's God's music. And then he died. To me, that... When I read that, I thought that is an encouraging proof of the great faithfulness of God, even when we can see absolutely no reason to be faithful. God can still bless it. So here's the great challenge that this text brings to us today. Because each of us have these circumstances. Where are you hurting? Where are you in pain so bad that you can't imagine that a loving God would allow such a struggle. Where is that for you? Is it with your money? Is it with your morality? Is it with your marriage? Where is it? Your family? What does this passage have to say to us who are hurting today? Let those who suffer according to the will of God and trust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Struggles in our life are not our reason to abandon God. They are our reason for hanging on to God. Because why are the struggles here? Peter told us all the way back up as we began, for your testing. They're going to test you. Are you going to forsake God or are you going to cling to Him? when that's all you have for your testing. And the purpose of the testing, we learned back in chapter 1, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Is it hard? You bet. Is it worth it? Yes. Let's pray. Father, each of us carries poundage with us today. We carry great pain. We can look back in the past and the way that you have sovereignly held us still and allowed that needle to penetrate our skin. And we've looked up at you with tears in our eyes and wondered why in the world you would allow such great pain. And yet we come to the scriptures and find the answers. That you allow that pain not for pain's sake, 
but to draw us, to force our own stubborn wills away from self-dependence and into dependence on Jesus Christ. So Lord, today as we walk out from here, let us take another step, make another move forward in loosening the grip of self-reliance and in clinging in all desperation at the same time screaming, my God, where are you? We cry out, God, we trust you. And we're going to continue to do what's right, even though we don't understand. Because you are a faithful creator. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you.